Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Elna Baker. And I think I have my hand on, like, the inner wall of my vagina, and all of a sudden, it moves. Like, it fucking moves. I know, and I pulled my hand out, so I was like, oh, baby, baby leg, baby leg. I touched a baby leg. Oh, my God, I touched a baby leg. That and more. But before that, I just wanted to say, you know, summer is finally here. And you want as much free time as possible. So don't let going to the post office cut into that free time. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can print postage right from your desk. You don't have to go to the post office and find parking and wait your turn. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. You can print everything from stamps to shipping labels whenever you need it, and then just hand the mail to your mailman. Stamps.com is so convenient and easy to use, you'll never waste time going to the post office again we use stamps.com at risk in the story studio and we love it right now you can use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to fifty five dollars free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now, here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Fuck Monster. Behind me now, and this episode is called The Best of Risk Number Six. This is the sixth time we're taking a look back at some of our favorite stories of the past year or so. And I'll tell you, it's so hard. It's so hard to put these best of compilations together because there's so much good stuff. And yet these best of episodes are a lot of fun because they're a chance to revisit some of our very favorite things. And it's a great intro for people who are new to the podcast. If you are new, be sure to check out the previous best of episodes as well. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the beautiful Episcopalian priest, Christine Lee. But before that, we're going to hear from one of our regulars, a dear old friend of the show, Mr. John Flynn. He told this story at a Risk Live show in Los Angeles, and we call it The Great Escape. My story first started while I was still living in New York, and I've been living in New York for like seven years at that point, and I was sort of at that point with New York where I was like, you know what, New York, you can go fuck yourself. You know, uh, you don't need me, I don't need you, maybe it's time for us to break up. At the time, I had been asked to come down to Key West to perform a one-man show I was doing at the Key West Summer Theater Festival. So I was like, oh, this is maybe perfect timing. Like, I'll go down to Key West, I'll date it for two weeks, see if maybe I want to move here. As you probably know, Key West is sort of, has a reputation of being sort of like a gay mecca. I am a boy kisser, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, I know I dress like someone who thinks Dave Matthews is a really interesting band. (laughs) Um, But I, joke's on you, because I don't know any Dave Matthews songs because I've never tried to date rape a girl. Um... (laughs) It's, it is the soundtrack to college date rape. Um, anyway, so I was like excited to go down to Key West and be like, oh, this little gay place, maybe that's where I want to go. It's been my life. And it is a very sort of gay-friendly mecca, but it's also like right on top of a very redneck, hick, you know, like hick, hicky, hicksters. Is that a thing? I don't know. Like... Um, so like I remember like when I first got there, like, I, like on one side of the street, there was a bar that advertised like the Miss Tranny USA pageant every night. And then on the other side uh, was another bar where it was like some fat, bald guy in like a trucker hat playing a guitar, singing a song called, uh, that I assume was called That's Why I Smeared That Queer and got like everyone in the bar to sing along. So I was like, I'm going to stay on this side of the street. So, you know, like I took a red eye down and I got there very early in the morning. I checked into my hotel and then I went to the diner that was sort of like attached to the hotel and it was completely deserted. It was just me and the waitress. And the waitress was sort of like Elaine Stritch's more jaded sister. Like she, she was, she was, she had that look where I was like, she could be 27 or 55. Like, I don't know, somewhere in there. She just had like this very worn face, very like road hard and put away wet. And I don't know what she's, she's not taking care of herself. That's all I know. Um, so, you know, like I order my breakfast from her and I order, you know, French toast and coffee. And she goes, well, what do you want in your coffee? And I'm like, I don't know, just milk and sugar is fine. And she sort of like puts her hands on her hips. She goes, what do you really want in your coffee? And I go, uh, what are you talking about? And she goes, 
All right, look, you just got here, so let me explain something to you. Key West is really a drinking town that has a tourist problem. So what do you want your coffee? And I was like, I guess Irish it up for me. So she does. Um, and then because I'm the only person there, she decides, why not just sit down with me while I'm having my breakfast and keep me company? But I was, you know, jet lagged and whatever, so I didn't care. So I was like, are you from Key West? Her eyes take on this sort of like glazed, far off look. And she goes, nope. Moved here when I was 18. And I didn't read the signs and I didn't leave when I should have. That's the thing about Key West. If you don't leave when it's time, you get stuck here forever. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Fuck, no wonder you guys are fucking alcoholics. Thank God. Um, So I finished breakfast and I say goodbye to her. And now... That afternoon, I didn't have anything to do, but a friend of mine who lived in New York just coincidentally was staying in Key West at the time at a clothing optional resort for gentlemen only, and he invited me to come visit him there, and I had never been to such a place, but I was like, well, this should be fun, and it was very weird. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a place like this, but he had to meet me in the lobby. I had to show two forms of ID, and I had to sign all these like non-disclosure contracts. They like led me through a metal detector, and then they took me through like all this maze of like hallways that had like locks and like punch card things you had to get through. Finally, we get to this one door, and as they're putting in the little code, my friend goes, are you ready? And they open up the door, and it's like this huge courtyard. It's outside, and there's this huge swimming pool, and there's like 10-foot-tall gates all around it, and they're like super tall trees, so no one could possibly look down. There's this pool and all these deck chairs and just dozens of naked men, as far as the eye can see. And it was literally like that moment in Willy Wonka when he's like, boys and girls, the chocolate room. And like those kids, I'm just like over, like, it's so beautiful, I can't even move. (laughs) And then like my friend behind me, like he's not singing Pure Imagination, but he might as well be. He just goes, welcome to Key West. (laughs) And then I'm like, wee! And I go jumping, leaping out into the courtyard to sample all the delicious man candy that is there. And uh, so I find this one guy, and he and I start talking, and uh, our conversation gets very sort of heated. And so I was like, oh, we should go back to your room. And he goes, well, I actually don't have a room here, so we have to go back to your room. And I was like, well, I actually am not staying at this hotel, but I'm staying at a hotel a few blocks away if you want to go there. And he's like, perfect. So we go back to my hotel room, and we continue our conversation it's all fine and normal, except uh, his penis does, has this thing where it leans very much to one side, which in and of itself is not that uncommon for those of you who have one or maybe have encountered one. But what was specific about his was it leaned to one side, but then it straightened itself out at the end. So I felt like I was jerking off the lead pipe from Clue. So we you know, go about that business and we finish up. And I like go into my bathroom just to like wash my hands real quick. And I'm in there like not like a minute, maybe two. And I come out and he's already like been dressed and is out the door. And it's like, see ya. And at first I was like, how rude. But then I was like, "Ah, I didn't have anything more to say to him really at this point anyway. So good riddance. So then that night I go to the place where I'm going to be performing. And I will be performing in the crystal room at the La-di-da Palace. (laughs) Because it's Key West, and it's this, the La-di-da Palace is, it's like right in the heart of town. It's this sort of like restaurant that has an upstairs cabaret space. Now, on one side of the La-di-da Palace is a old school chicken farm, like this plot of land where people, it's like 
gated and like fenced in and there's just chickens running around and like chicken coops outside these people just raise chickens and then on the other side of it is an old mansion that has been converted into basically a whorehouse there's just like a wraparound porch and there's all these women standing there fanning themselves and a guy like on the sidewalk who keeps being like this girl's here you got girls what kind of girls you're like we got all kind of girls here and i'm like mm, not today um <laughs> And so I go to the Crystal Room at the La Dida Palace, and the Crystal Room is upstairs. Now, normally what happens is there's two local drag queens who normally just trade off nights. And so for the next two weeks, I'm just inserted into the schedule. So it's like drag queen A, drag queen B, this guy. Then back to drag queen A, drag queen B, and me. And so that's how it's going to be that rotation for the next two weeks. And so I meet these two guys, and they're like the perfect match set of drag queens. There's like the slightly older one who's like a little more jaded, uh, you know, a little, you know, been there, done that. And then there's like the younger one who's like more like wide eyed and just like, I can't, life is beautiful. And like, you know, like the older, like the jaded one, like he's got the funnier one liners, but like the younger one, like looks cuter in his outfit. So it all sort of works out. And then whatever happens, like regardless of which one of us is performing, all three of us end up just hanging out at the bar because we get the staff discount. And uh, because the La Dada Palace is sort of an indoor-outdoor place, it's not air-conditioned, and it's summer in Key West, so it's really fucking hot. So they just give us fans. So we just sit at the bar every night drinking like passion fruit Cosmos and fanning ourselves. And it's really seductive to live your life like that. I was like, Kate West is really giving me the hard sell. And you know, going down there, I was nervous because I'm like, I'm not famous. People don't know who I am. Like, I'm going to be doing this show. And I and it was a show that I talked about doing a musical with Betty Buckley and Debbie Gibson. I was like, people aren't going to know who they are. This is going to be ridiculous. I don't know if anyone's going to show up. But it turns out whoever did the PR for this event was like great at it. So it was like packed every night and audiences were loving the show. And I was just getting drunk with drag queens all the time. And I was like, this is amazing. I love this. I think I could move to Key West. I could totally see myself building a life here maybe even do drag uh no uh <laughs> too big and so anyway so it was like i was going to it was like the end of the two weeks i've been having a great time and i was going for my last show and i get to the venue the people who run it were just like oh my god we're so sorry we made a mistake we totally forgot we double booked the space there's going to be a wedding going on tonight and I was like, okay, so the show's canceled. They're like, no, 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 uh, you're sold out. So we're still going to have the wedding and we're still going to have your show, but we're just going to put like a wall up in between <laughs> in the middle. So like you'll be here and then the wedding will be there. And I was like, are you sure? I mean, like this is someone's wedding. They're like, nope, this is what we're doing. And I was like, okay. And it was like not even like a wall that like went up. It was like a cubicle wall. <laughs> So like I'm over here being like, so Debbie Gibson's kind of weird. And then there are people over at a wedding who like every so often someone just like poke their head and be like, what the fuck is going on over there? And I can't blame them. Who wants a one man show competing with your wedding? Nobody. Anyway, so like I'm sort of disappointed that this is how like it ends. This is how I'm going out. And so like I finished the show. I sort of rushed through it and I go back to the dressing room and the two drag queens are there waiting for me. And they're like, oh my God, we heard what happened. We were so sorry. We rushed over. But we've got two surprises for you. We've got two presents for you. Are you excited? And I was like, sure. So one of them takes out this really long, thin joint. It was like a pin, but it was like super long. So it was like a Virginia Slim of joints. <laughs> And it was like really nice Florida weed, I guess. So like we smoked that and it's like a lot of fun. And then they're like, all right, are you ready for your next surprise? And they're like, bring it on. And so one of the walls in this dressing room was just like floor to ceiling, like cabinets that had been locked the whole time. I didn't know what was in them. So they unlocked them, they open it up. And it turns out this is where they keep their wigs. It is five shelves of just like mannequin heads with wigs on them. And again, it's another Willy Wonka moment where I'm just like, this is beautiful. <laughs> And I'm just standing there like stone trying to take it all in. And then like the younger drag queen just goes, wig party! <laughs> and oh my God, you guys, if drag queens ever invite you to a wig party, you have to fucking go. 
It is amazing. It was so, you have no idea like how much I got a good wig and just change your life. You're just like, maybe I'm meant to be this person. Like, I don't know. Maybe I should have bangs. I don't know. Could be. So like we all are just like playing with the wigs for like half an hour. Then we finally like settle on like our look for the night. So I do this sort of like Tina Turner Beyond Thunderdome, like just like batshit crazy hairdo. The young one has a sort of platinum blonde afro like Dolly Parton in 9 to 5. And then the the older one has a sort of like reddish Lucille Ball, like kind of sassy number. So like we're stoned. We've got our wigs on. We go down to like our little spot in the bar and we're like this bizarro high concept Charlie's Angels. So we're like sitting at the bar that we sit at and it's right by like a door, like one of the entrances to the place. And like we see like there's two white his and her scooters that say like just married on them. And, you know, and so like we're drinking and fanning ourselves. We're sort of like making fun of them. And like at this point, the wedding has taken over the whole venue. So it's just like the wedding is going on everywhere. And, you know, like and they're like sort of like telling me about the, the couple who got married because they're local people. And they're like, the bride is a former beauty pageant contestant. And the groom is a former homosexual. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> um, okay, that happens, I guess. Does the bride know about that? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone knows. It's totally cool. He really loves her, and he's not even gay anymore. And I was like, okay. Uh, I don't think that happens, but whatever. And then at one point, they like point them out. They're like, oh, there's the bride and groom. And the bride looked like what you would expect a former beauty pageant contestant. She's like, beautiful, but dead inside. Um, <laughs> And then the groom is the guy that I hooked up with when I first got to Key West two weeks ago. And so without thinking, I just go, uh, that guy is not not gay. And then, of course, these two drag queens, they like smell the gossip and they're just like, what? And I like sort of like, you know, explaining like, well, I first got here, I hooked up with him. And like the younger one is like all like slightly scandalized. But the older one, you know, the jaded one, he's a little bit like, I've been around the block. And he just goes, prove it. And I just go, well, he's. "Mm, mm." The jaded one literally drops his passion fruit Cosmo. And the younger one just goes, oh, my God, the rumors are true. (laughs) And then they're both like, you have to say something. You have to say something. I'm like, no, I do not. I, A, do not know these people, and B, just did a one-man show in the midst of their wedding. I'm done. I'm out. I have shit on their marriage enough. I don't need to do anything more. They're like, no, 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 we'll do some shots, and then you'll say something. I'm like, I'll do some shots, but I don't think I'm going to say anything. But who knows? So as the bartender is making our round of shots, from down the street... Two other scooters come charging down the street and one of them, two homosexuals are on them. And I say that because one of them was wearing like white booty shorts and a tank top that said silence equals death on it. And he was yelling, you fucking lied to me. You fucking betrayed me. You said you loved me. And the two other drag queens are like, oh my God, that's the groom's ex-boyfriend. They broke up three years ago and he has not gotten over it. And so they like drive up right to where we are and are screaming and we're like, we have ringside seats to this. We were so excited. We literally closed our fans. We could dramatically open them again and fan ourselves as we took it all in. 
And so they drive on their scooters and they park them in the sky, you know, and he's like chubby and out of shape and clearly he's been binging on Ben and Jerry's for three years. And he's like, yeah, like, you fucker, you fucking lied to me. How dare you? And the whole wedding is like, hubbub, hubbub, what's going on? And everyone like goes upstairs and, and he's like yelling. It's going on for like 10 minutes. So finally the groom sticks his head. And oh, like, and this guy's like trying to like damage their his and her just married scooters. But he's sort of like just sort of like kicking them or like slapping them. And then he like... Will like try to like pick them up, but he's in not shape at all. So he just like lifts like a few inches and then drops it. And then like the shocks absorb everything. Like nothing's happening to these scooters. <laughs> They're totally fine. And so he's just yelling and going crazy. And then at one point, the groom sticks his head out of one of the windows and he goes, go home and stop embarrassing yourselves. Because shame is like a consideration at this point. And then... The guy gets this sort of like adrenaline rush of like jilted lover and he's sort of like and he goes I'll show you embarrassing and he like picks up the scooter uh, like and like like this and he like goes to try and throw it but he like trips and is weak and so it ends up like hitting one of the like chicken coops next door and suddenly there's like feathers and like blood in the air and like it hit like the fence and like chickens are running all throughout the street and then like on the other side the whores are like this is like cutting into their business they're like shut the fuck up faggot and then like and then like people at the wedding are throwing down like cake and champagne down on these guys and suddenly, like, the cops are showing up, so there's, just, like, sirens and all this and lights going, and I'm sitting there at the bar with my Tina Turner wig and my fan and my passion fruit Cosmo, and I think to myself, all right, Key West, I get it. This is the sign. It's time for me to go home. Thank you all very much. feel the sweat forming in the palms of my hands and a pit growing in my stomach as I sat in the back seat of an old Mercedes Benz, which was being driven by North Korean officials. I could see a large figure looming in the distance and I knew where they were taking us and I didn't like it one bit. I had just arrived in Pyongyang, North Korea with my father and our good friend, Paul Kim. The airport officials had checked our passports and the visas that we had secured in Beijing, and then they immediately confiscated our passports. I remember it felt a little like being locked in the trunk of a car, and the only way that you could get out was if someone let you out. It was 1997, which was just a few years into a terrible famine that North Korea had experienced, where some estimates say that over 3 million people had already died of starvation. And we were there to deliver food and medicine from my dad's humanitarian organization, which was set up for the sole purpose of bringing aid to North Korea, that and essentially to bribe the government into letting my dad see his family. My dad was separated from his family when he was only 12 years old during the Korean War. And his parents had sent him and his older siblings to the South while they and his younger siblings stayed behind since the younger ones were too small to travel. And it was during that trip that the border between North and South Korea was closed. 
And he didn't know what happened to his family. He didn't know if they were dead or alive. And he basically grew up like an orphan on the streets of South Korea. And then in 1986, you know, after he had immigrated to the States, my sisters and I were all born here, the North Korean government somehow managed to locate him. And they informed him that his mother and younger siblings were still alive and that his father had died during the war. And they were inviting him to come to North Korea and to see his family. Now, by this time, my dad was a very well-known pastor in the Korean community, and it's very likely that they wanted to use him for propaganda. And despite the fact that the North Korean government had a reputation for kidnapping people and my mother's tears and protests and concerns for his safety, he was determined to go. And after 35 years, he was reunited with his family and able to see his mother before she died. And he had made several trips since then, each time bringing this desperately needed money and medicine to his family. Earlier that year, I remember my dad sitting me down on the edge of my bed and saying, you know, Christine, I'm getting older and I'm not going to be around forever to take care of my family. And the second generation, you girls and your cousins, you've never met our family in North Korea. It can be dangerous. And each time I go, there's always a risk. And your sisters are married and have children, but you, you're single. And I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, if you get kidnapped by North Koreans, no one's going to miss you. <laughs> But, you know, I didn't care about the risk. You know, this was my father's homeland. You know, I grew up hearing stories about North Korea, not the crazy place that's depicted in the news, but the North Korea of my father's childhood. And here was a whole side of my family that I had never met before and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually meet them. I mean, at this point, you know, nothing could keep me away. We were driven to this large plaza at the base of a bronze statue of Kim Il-sung, which was you know, well over 60 feet tall. And his arm was stretched out in this gesture of benevolence over the city of Pyongyang. And as we were led into the plaza, Paul, our friend, leans over to me and whispers, just watch your dad and just do whatever he does. I remember there was a man in a suit standing at the front of the plaza with a microphone and dramatic music was playing in the background. There were North Korean soldiers with rifles surrounding the plaza around us. And the government officials um, handed us flowers and they lined us up with other people who were there, but they put the three of us uh, front and center in front of this statue. I watched my dad and just followed his lead as he walked up to the base of the statue and placed the flowers at the foot of Kim Il-sung. And as we walked back to our place, he said to Paul and I, when they tell you to bow, don't bow, but just bow your head and pray for North Korea. And we stood facing this image of this dictator who caused so much suffering and death among his people. And at that moment, the man speaking gave instruction for everyone to bow, 
and everyone lined up, bowed deeply, except for my dad, Paul, and I. And we just stood straight, bowing only our heads as we prayed for North Korea. And I remember seeing angry whispers and displeased looks from the government officials, but no one said a word to us as they led us back into our cars. Driving through the streets of Pyongyang, it was unnaturally quiet. And there were very few cars out as we drove to the hotel. And we were passing what felt like concrete building after concrete building after concrete building. And the few people who were actually out walking were almost always walking alone. And as we pulled up in front of our hotel, my dad leans over and whispers to me, look over at that tree. Behind it, you'll see a woman in a yellow sweater. That's my sister. I'm not sure if the officials even knew that she was there or what they would have done if they had known that she was there because North Koreans live in this constant fear of punishment and imprisonment and even death for what seems to be the most minor infractions. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see this woman in the yellow sweater watching us get out of our car and yet unable to approach us. We had requested to be taken to a number of different places, out to the countryside so we could see the places that had been hit worst by the famine, um, an orphanage. Um, we, of course, wanted to see my dad's family. But instead, we got the Kim Il-sung tour, you know, Kim Il-sung's birthplace, Kim Il-sung's university, Kim Il-sung's tomb, which was his old administration building. And we walked into this huge cavernous room that was completely dark, except for this single creepy red light that was shining on his embalmed body in a glass case. And no one looks good in red light, especially if you're dead. It was a, just a creepy environment. And morning, afternoon, and night, they would just talk incessantly about Kim Il-sung, their glorious father, and his son, Kim Jong-il, and how much they loved the people and provided for them, you know, all of their achievements, their teachings, their philosophies, and just on and on and on, they would drone about Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. And after a while, I just began to tune them out. And I was feeling the minutes slipping away and running out when we would have to get back on that plane and away from our North Korean family. Well, the day finally came to meet them. And I remember stepping out into the lobby of our hotel when I saw my aunt with the yellow sweater come rushing towards me along with my other aunts and my uncle and all of my cousins with their arms stretched out, you know, crying, hugging me, nearly tearing me apart. And we were all just laughing and crying like it was the first time and the last time that we would ever see each other. And I was able to see up close that my aunt had this moon-shaped face and a wide smile and these eyes that were sad and merry at the same time. And she would not let me go. I met my cousin Hak Chal, who was this tall, good-looking young man with chiseled features and a mop of black hair. And between my terrible Korean and his terrible English, somehow we were able to communicate with each other. And he would ask me a million questions about the U.S., you know, what it was like. 
he asked me questions about God and whether I believed in God or not, or whether I believed God answered prayer. And when I said that I did, he just laughed hysterically and would say, that's nonsense. But then he would stop and say, well, I don't know. They only teach us one thing. And then there was my sweet cousin, Kyung Ah, who was just a few years older than I was, and she was pregnant with her first child. Everyone said that we looked like we were twin sisters. She didn't speak any English at all, but I remember how she would shyly hold my hand as we walked along. We went to my aunt's apartment for lunch, sitting down at these long, low tables on the ground. And they brought out two bowls of naengmyeon, which are cold buckwheat noodles that North Korea is famous for. My dad would always say when we were growing up how much he missed the naengmyeon that he used to eat in North Korea. After a few moments, we noticed that no other bowls of naengmyeon were being brought out, just the two that were placed in front of my father and me. And that's when we realized that they had saved up all that they had for just these two bowls. There wasn't enough to go around. And I noticed Kyunga with a roll of bread in her hand, which was likely given to her because she was pregnant. And we pleaded with them to share with us. You know, we could each have a bite to eat, we told them. But they refused. And we begged them You know, how could we possibly eat these noodles in front of them when they had nothing to eat? But they wouldn't budge. And I realized then that for them, this might be the only chance that they could ever give something to us. You know, they didn't know if they would ever see us again. And we didn't know if we would ever be allowed to come back again. These two bowls of noodles represented all those years that we had missed together as a family. All of the memories that we were never able to have. You know, these times of laughing together and sharing dinner together and having holidays together, of births and marriages missed. Their joy in seeing me for the first time. You know, their gratitude to my father for helping them to survive. And I realized then that there is a dignity in being able to give to someone that you love. And that there's also a grace in being able to receive something from someone who loves you. And so my dad and I ate those noodles and we slurped up every last bit of broth and we told them how delicious it was and how we had never had such amazing naengmyeon in our lives. And then we went back to our hotel room and we just cried like babies. The next morning, they came to our hotel to say goodbye right before we were about to leave for the airport. And I gave them everything I had, you know, my clothes, my jewelry, my toiletries, as if I could somehow import some kind of hope and meaning into these objects and and into their lives. I didn't know if this was going to be the last time that I would ever see them. Now, whenever I read about North Korea in the news, the first thing that I think of is not their bizarre, crazy threats 
they make to incinerate the U.S. or South Korea with nuclear weapons, or the rows and rows of soldiers marching in formation, or that 60-foot statue looming over the city of Pyongyang. Instead, I see a woman in a yellow sweater standing against a backdrop of gray. I see Hak Chal's earnest face and his hunger to know what was out there beyond the prison that he lived in. I see Kyunga holding that roll of bread and those two precious and costly bowls of noodles offered in love. is risk this is liam howard behind me now and we just heard from christine lee who shared that story the first time i heard it was in one of our storytelling workshops at the storystudio.org and in a little bit we're going to be hearing from scott whitney i discovered his story in the exact same way the storytelling workshops that we teach at the storystudio.org are just invaluable. You can do it one-on-one over Skype if you're not in New York or LA. We also do corporate workshops, and we have an online workshop that you can take in your own time with video lectures and a workbook and all. So come check us out at thestorystudio.org. Like I said before, it kind of pains me a little bit to call this the best of risk because so many stories cannot be included here many of which because they were just too long to include in a compilation. There was Emily Reese in Reno told that remarkable story about her husband coming out of the closet to her. Trevor Noah. Trevor is a comedian from South Africa, but he told the story of his his mother getting shot in the head by an abusive husband. There was Janine Latis who told the story of losing her sister to another abusive relationship. 
Amy Salloway told that delightful story about her first lesbian experience. Dan Savage told that story about how having sex with a guy was kind of like a heterosexual experience for him. John F. O'Donnell told the story of having a bipolar breakdown on a bridge, thinking he was uh, trying to save the internet and the world. Risk is truly an anomaly. It is a safe space for people to talk about anything, warts and all. No need to censor and filter yourself. No need to polish and pretty things up and water it down. Like you're so used to hearing in so many other places that you might not even be conscious of it anymore. So spread the word. Let your friends know how to download the podcast. Let them know they gotta check us out. And remember, you can pitch us your own stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Come be a part of this. Make a contribution by sharing your own stories. Okay. Next up, another favorite of ours, Elna Baker, with a story that she told at the Risk Live show in New York City. We call it Ooh, that smell. So I'm in L.A. last pilot season, and I'm about to pitch a show that I would write and star in to the head of development at NBC and a bunch of executives. And this is the fourth time that I've gone out to L.A. and spent my own money and all of my own hope on this thing And it's the closest I have ever gotten. And when you get really close to a dream of yours, you start to look back at all the other times that it didn't work out and wonder if there was maybe some part of you that didn't want to succeed or a part of you that self-sabotages. And so my goal this time was to find that part of me and completely annihilate it. So as a woman, when you get out to L.A. and try to work in that side of things... I'm not stupid. Like, I know that the best thing I could do is not write or be funny or create. It's just how I look. And, you know, I know that if I lost 30 pounds, it would be a huge game changer. And not that I haven't tried. It's just like, ladies, it's very hard to get down to your alien weight. (laughs) The other thing is that I, for most of my life, I was overweight or, um, or obese, you know, semantics. <laughs> um, at my heaviest, I was 265 pounds, and in my mid-20s, uh, I lost, I guess altogether it was 100, 110 pounds. And so the thought of trying to lose 30 more, it's, it's just too much. It's hard. And the thing is, like, I was trying to act when I was obese, and I remember what it was like. I used to go to these auditions, and they would say things to me like, we're looking for someone of a a different build, or you just don't match the male lead, or my personal favorite, someone once said, this character eats less than you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, okay. Um, Or they would just give me unsolicited advice, like, have you thought of Pilates? Like, like my biggest problem was I wasn't flexible enough. (laughs) And so, you know, when I went on this diet and lost all the weight, it was like this huge 
life change. And yes, I, I got all these new opportunities and, and I have more confidence. And, and yet, when I started going out to Hollywood or, or you know, meeting with agents, they would do the same version of the old thing, which is they would say, uh, you know, Tina Fey lost 30 pounds for her career and it, it was a big game changer. And just using all these shining examples of other women that, that you could be if you were, if you were already them. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, this time I was like, I'm not gonna let this stand in my way. I'm gonna try to lose 30 pounds. And so I went on this, uh, like a, a juice fast, uh, without any juice, uh, for a month. <laughs> and I was down, you know, 15 pounds. I gotten down 15 pounds, and I, I mean, it was the skinniest I've been, and it was hard, and I was stressed out, and I was hangry, and, and in the midst of this, my boyfriend flew out from New York to visit me, and it was about five days before this big pitch meeting, and he saw me, and he was like, you are not yourself. He's like, babe, take a break. I know this great place, it's just uh, up in Big Sur, it's sort of like this spa retreat, we'll go there for the weekend and you can just relax before the meeting. And I was like, alright. So we went to, does anyone know what Esalen is? Yeah. yeah, so not, it's, he pitched it so wrong, he called it a spa retreat. We arrive and it says, Esalen, a community experiment in mental health. <laughs> um, excuse me? giant intervention and this like group therapy and it was great but I was like I sort of wanted to get my nails done I'm not gonna lie <laughs> I didn't want to talk about my mom and my life issues so we we're going to these therapy sessions and then I'm like where's the spa part of this whole thing and he's like wait till tonight I'm gonna take you to the back and they're famous for, they have these big saltwater sulfur baths that overlook the ocean. And so it's night, we go out there, and just as we're about to go in, he's like, oh, by the way, um, it's kind of a nudist thing. He's like, you're cool with that, right? <laughs> and uh, I mean, like, it didn't even occur to him that I wouldn't be cool with that because he's an attractive person, so. And normally that's a good thing, <laughs> but not right now because the truth is, like, I do not like to be naked in front of other people. And you know, it's not just like girl issues. Like I used to weigh 110 pounds more than I do now. So when I don't have clothes on, I have extra skin and I have a scar completely across my body, front to back, from when they took some of the extra skin off. And I have scars up my legs and I have stretch marks. And I don't like people to see me that way. And, but I was like, okay, fine, fine, I can do this, I can do this. And I, we walk into this room of like, you know, 50 people that are naked at the bass, and they're just like LA yoga. I mean, they could not be more attractive. It's just like walking by. In fact, I like was, you know, you're trying. I was trying to like be confident, cheer myself up, and I invented a song where I was like, she's got that super fly body. I got that octomom body. <laughs> singing that to myself. I was like, you can do it, girl. You can do it, girl. It don't matter. Um, and I'm just trying to be like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. And I get in the baths, and they're, they're all talking, like, uh, the power of intention or the secret. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, the secret is you're attractive. You can have whatever you want. <laughs> and I reverted to the middle school version of me that was just, like, super judgy and, like, making, making faces. And my boyfriend turned to me and was like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the solo bath. And so I walked over, and they had these big, like, clawfoot bathtubs. 
And so I just like plopped down in one of those sulfur things and like the water was completely over me and I just like was hiding. And I remember like my, my knee was poking up and I could see like the, just the top, like a hump of my knee. And I suddenly like had this memory. And it's funny cause like I was fat for most of my life, but I don't have that many memories of what my body looked like, which makes me think I just never looked down or I just only looked there in mirrors. And then suddenly I remembered my body and I remembered being in a bathtub. And it was like shortly after I, so I found out I was too big to get in a bathtub that was full of water without making the water overflow. So I had to sit in the bathtub and then fill it with water in case I gauged it wrong, guys. The ins and outs of being fat. You know what I mean, guys? You know what I'm saying? Anyway. Uh, so, so I remember I was in this bathtub and I had filled it with water and I was able to almost fully cover my body except that my stomach was like poking up above the water. And I remember just looking at it and thinking it was like an island. And then I like, there was like mini shampoo and conditioner. I like put it, I was like, no, I'm a boy, I'm meeting on the island, I'm a girl on the island. And I just played on this little island. And the thing is, it wasn't a sad memory at the time, but thinking about it now, I was like, I remembered what it was like to be obese. And it really did feel like I was an island. And I had worked so hard to get off that island. And yet at the same time, I didn't want to be like those people. Because I felt like I owed it to her to never become that way or something. And yet, like, it didn't mean that those people couldn't make me feel bad about my own body. <laughs> and so I was just sitting in this bathtub and like, all these issues that you think that you've gotten over, like they're just like coming back. And I felt like I just absorbed all these like bad feelings about myself, which is exactly what you need before you go to a pitch meeting. So, so we get up and I, I say, I have to leave now. And, and my boyfriend and I go and we spend the night in the yurt, you know, because when in California. And um, the next morning we leave to drive back down to LA. And we're in the car, and I'm kind of still thinking about this, and, and all of a sudden I'm like, you know, it's weird, it, it sort of still smells like the sulfur, you know, like a bad rotten egg smell of the bath. And I'm like, did I get it on some clothes? I'm like sniffing around, I'm like, where is that smell coming? And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my god, is that my vagina? <laughs> I know. And I, I mean, I have never smelled my own vagina. I mean, like, you know, if you get real close, but like from here to my face, I've never been able to smell my own vagina. And I can smell it real good. And I say to my boyfriend, I'm like, do you smell, like, do you smell that? Do you, does my vagina smell right now? And he's like, no, no, I don't, I don't smell anything. And I was like, are you sure? And so I made him like drive to like a CVS and I proceeded to buy like every single thing that you could put into your vagina <laughs> to make it smell better. It was like a bad nursery rhyme. Like there was a vagina that swallowed a douche. <laughs> oh, what the use to swallow a douche? It swallowed the douche when Dr. Phil told it to first swallow Vagisil. <laughs> it swallowed the Vagisil when Summers and Eve couldn't get the smell to leave. Like I just kept putting things into my vagina, hoping it would smell better. And it just kept smelling worse. And another day went by, and another day went by, and it was the day of my pitch meeting. And I, like, I just remember, I had prayed before. I was like, please wake up and be suddenly better. And I woke up, and even before I opened my eyes, I was like, <laughs> like, it was, like, 
I'm not even joking. It's like, you know when you get in a train car and you're like, oh, there's a homeless guy in here. You don't even have to see them. It smelled like there was a homeless man in my vagina. Which technically means he's no longer homeless, guys. So, so I say to my boyfriend, I'm like, I, it, 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 you cannot tell me I do not smell right now. It smells terrible. And he's like, babe, you're just trying to psych yourself up. You have this big meeting. You're trying to get in your own head about it. Like, you don't smell. I don't smell anything, I promise. And then as if to, like, prove his point, he's like, if it smelled, would I do this? And then he went down on me. <laughs> and, you know, that helped me feel a little bit better. I was like, okay, maybe maybe I am making this up. I'm like, I, why would I do this? But why would I make this up? But okay, okay, I don't smell, I don't smell. And I got, you know, dressed for the meeting and it's all like you have like one designer outfit that you like paid way too much to wear to this meeting. And like everything is just a show. Like you already are rich and famous when you are not at all. And, um, so I get ready to go to the meeting and I, I remember I looked in this full-length mirror and you know, it was this like moment of like, I have worked so hard over the years to get here. And I don't think like, I thought, all I thought was like, I'm so tired. <laughs> that was all I thought. And I left the meeting and next thing you know, I'm in front of this like, it's like eight executives on the other side of a table and I'm standing up there and I'm supposed to give this 15 minute pitch and it's like, oh, this is a Mormon girl who lives in New York and says yes, but then something she gotta say no to. And as I'm saying this, I'm like doing that thing where like you're talking, but you're thinking a whole other thing in your head. So I'm like, and uh, she says yes to life, but no to sex and dread. And as I'm saying this, I'm like, he can smell my vagina. She can smell my vagina. He's wondering what that smell is. He knows it's my vagina. And I, I just, the whole room was like, what is the smell, right? <laughs> and so it ended and I left and like they get put like a temporary hold, like they were gonna buy it and then the deal fell through and, and I fly back to New York and guys, my vagina still smelled. It did not, and like, I didn't have insurance so I was like, oh, all right, I just, I have to spend $300 to go to the gynecologist. And before I did that, I was like, okay, last ditch attempt. I'm gonna see if I can be my own gynecologist right now and figure this shit out. So this is a little bit gross, as though this hasn't been gross already. Um, guys, it might get a little gross. I don't know if you're ready for that. Um, so I uh, took, I, you know, and I had like checked the oil, right? But like, I hadn't, I was like, I'm gonna like boldly go where, where no man has gone before, you know, like up into the outer space, the dark void. I like stuck my hand up there and like got it up pretty high and like also like does anyone know what it like ladies do you know what it's supposed to feel like you do I don't know what it's supposed to feel like up there it's just like a it's like a black hole right so I'm like feeling around I don't know what I'm feeling for and I think I have my hand on like the inner wall of my vagina and all of a sudden it moves, like it fucking moves. I know, and I pulled my hand out, so I was like, oh, baby, baby leg, baby leg, I touched a baby leg. Oh my God, I touched a baby leg. I just touched my baby's leg. I don't know, I didn't know I had a baby, and I have a baby leg, and I think the baby's dead because the baby smells really bad. And I was like freaking out. And then I was like, you gotta go back in, girl. You gotta go back in. Like we gotta find this, find solvent Nancy Drew style. <laughs> Stuck my hand back in there, and I got a hold of the baby foot, and um, I started like slowly to pull it out, and I took it out, and um, 
I, first of all, I do not know. Like, there is literally no point in my memory when this could have happened. Maybe it happened a month or two earlier. But I lost a tampon, and I didn't know, and then probably had sex, and then it went further into that land, and then the sulfur water had been absorbed in it, and that's what the smell had been. And I pulled that, and I'm not kidding, it was the worst. I started, I've only heard the expression, to retch. I was like, <laughs> I was retching. And then I just started projectile vomiting. And I like threw it in the thing, I flushed it down, I was like, oh, there was like, it was so the grossest thing that's ever happened in my whole life. And, and I immediately called my boyfriend, because I was like, I, could, I, I called him and I was like, you are never gonna believe what just happened. And I tell him all of this and he's like, oh, thank God, your pussy smells so bad. And he's like, I had to go down on that. And I was like, what? I was so mad, I was like, you lied to me. Like, he made me feel crazy. But at the same time, I do think that was the, the greatest gesture of love anyone has ever given anyone in all time. And uh, so I, I went back and I like cleaned the vomit up off the, and then I just still felt dirty, so I, I took a bath and I remember just soaking in this bath. And it was probably the first time in a month and a half I had relaxed a little bit even. And I just suddenly hit me how absurd, like after all the work, after everything, then this is the way it had ended. And then I realized, you know, at least I now know, if there's a part of me that doesn't want to make it, it's my vagina. <laughs> Thank you. It's a Saturday morning and I'm working in a housing project, knocking on doors. I'm in this hallway with uh, brown industrial carpeting. The sounds of daytime TV are spilling out from the apartments along with the smell of cheap soap. And I turn to the door on my right. It's my turn to knock. I knock on this hollow cord door and I can hear the sound reverberate in the apartment. And as usual, I'm praying metaphorically that the person won't come to the door. The door opens up and the first thing that I notice is that the apartment is pitch black. And as my eyes adjust, I see the man that I would come to know as Paul. His face looked like he hadn't aged at all and he had aged horribly at the same time. It was round and kindly and cherubic, but it was also pale and pockmarked and weathered. His hair was just a tangled mess, like he had had bedhead for a decade. And I noticed that his fingers wrapped around the door jamb were just stained yellow with nicotine stains. Then I noticed this tangle of burned flesh at his wrist. And it disappeared under the sleeve of his long john shirt. And then it reappeared right at the base of his throat and wrapped around the back of his neck up across his head. Something horrible had happened to this man. And I was kind of brought back to the moment when he said, in this really kind way, hi, wh what can I do for you this morning? And I launched into the presentation that I'd done a million times. Hi, my name is Scott. I know you weren't expecting me. I won't take up much of your time. And then I'd get into some kind of 
existential theme that I could sort of get behind. And I asked him, do you think it's reasonable to believe in the face of all the injustice that we see in the world today, that there is some kind of God that exists and is interested in us? And I really didn't have an answer to that question at this point, at least one that satisfied me. But fortunately, not too many people were interested in hearing my answer, so it worked out. But Paul was. He said, yeah, I have no doubt that God exists. And I'm equally sure that he has no interest in me. I had been one of Jehovah's Witnesses almost my entire life. And I had always really struggled with the structure, with the regimen of that lifestyle. I hated going to people's doors like this and telling them things they didn't want to hear when they didn't want to hear them. I hated having to explain to my co-workers that I didn't celebrate Christmas because originally it was a holiday that uh, honored the Roman god Saturnalia. When inside I'm thinking, who gives a shit? There's a lot of good reasons not to celebrate Christmas. That isn't one. I just struggled with the whole structure of the lifestyle. But on the flip side, I totally bought the belief system. It made sense to me. It provided satisfying answers to a lot of the big questions, whether or not God existed. And if so, what was my responsibility in the face of that? Why is the world so fucked up and is it going to get better? These all had satisfying answers. And fundamentally, it felt true. It felt like I had truth. And if I had truth, then suddenly I didn't have any choices to make. What I wanted didn't matter. That was irrelevant. All that mattered was truth. But when I hit 30, the old story started to break down. And I could feel that I just didn't have the conviction that I once did. And I had this nagging doubt in the back of my head that if this wasn't truth, if this wasn't truth, I'm as obligated to get out as I had been to stay. But I also had to consider the implications. Because if I walk away from this faith, I am entirely losing my community. Friends, family, literally will pass me on the street as though I'm a ghost. So I need to be pretty damn sure. There's really no taking a break either to sort this stuff out. If I stopped going to meetings or stopped going out in field service, that is knocking on people's doors... I'm going to hear about it out of concern. My friends are, are going to pay attention because they're concerned. And attention is the last thing that I wanted when I'm trying to sort this stuff out. So I decided to try to work it out under the radar and just go through the motions. And that meant continuing to go out in field service. Knocking on people's door on a Saturday morning is weird, even if you're not experiencing a crisis of faith. You're there wearing a tie, you got a book bag and a Bible, trying not to feel like a salesman, and nobody wants you there. People would slam the door in my face pretty regularly. One guy came to the door cleaning his gun in some kind of gesture. What you really wanted were return visits. That's when you had already called on somebody cold and they agreed to let you come back. So you got a better chance of seeing somebody with a friendly face. They may not answer, but the other benefit is that you get to drive out to their place on a Saturday morning and eat up some time when you would normally be knocking on doors of people that don't want to talk to you. So RVs are the place to be. 
I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend, we couldn't have been older than 12. I had a friend that announced in a car group when we were out in field service that he had a return visit. This guy that he really had to get back uh, and, and talk to. So because this is just more productive than everything else we could be doing, we drove the 45 minutes out to the return visit. And then we just start driving up and down these suburban streets because he can't remember the address. And we're just hunting for this house for almost an hour until he finally gets really excited and points and says, that's it, that's the house. I totally remember. So we pull over, he and I jump out, we run up to the door. And just as he's about to knock on the door, he turns to me and admits, I have no idea who lives here. I'm totally faking this. So we just sort of pantomime knocking on the door for the sake of the people in the car and then run back. But you know, it, it ate up two and a half hours. And if I'm honest, things really hadn't changed a lot for me at 30. In the face of this period of deep crisis of faith, I had encountered this man, Paul, that seemed really interested in what we had to say and and what we were talking to people about. At the end of our chat, I asked him, as I always did, if it would be all right if we came back, if we set up a return visit, and that would be the time for Paul to say, no, I appreciate you stopping by. It was great talking to you, but I'm all set. But Paul didn't say that. He said, yeah, that'd be great. Look forward to seeing you next week. So the next Saturday, I went back to Paul's, and miraculously, he answered the door again. We picked up the conversation right where we left off, and it was in that conversation that Paul told me how he got those burns. He had suffered from mental illness almost his entire life. And when he was much younger, that manifested itself in this deep and real sense that he was evil. When he reached his late teens and early 20s, he started to hear this internal voice, and it identified as Christ. And that voice said to him, Paul, you're beyond redemption. It would be better if you didn't exist. You are an enemy of mine. In his mid-twenties, he really started to take on what that voice was saying. He said, one night I had just had it. I, I just felt like I was drowning in these voices and I decided to do something about it. So I climbed a utility pole by my house and I reached out and I grabbed a hold of the high tension wires. And the last thing that I remembered was just an explosion of white light. The next morning, Paul woke up in the emergency room. He'd survived, but of course now he was horrifically disfigured. And as he laid in that ER bed in the days after, the voice came back to him and it said, you survived, but don't think that anything has changed. You're still beyond redemption. And after he left the hospital, Paul became a recluse, and one Saturday morning, I knocked on his door. So, as I kept going back to Paul's, and we kept having these conversations, I was really wrestling with what to do, because he seemed to really be enjoying the message that I was sharing with him. But it was a message that I really didn't value anymore. He seemed to derive hope and comfort from the thoughts that had sustained me for so long, but to me, they just seem vapid and hollow now. And then I thought, who am I to impose my crisis of faith on this guy who seems to really be responding to it? My doubts are just a voice that I'm hearing. It really has no place in this conversation with this man. So 
Instead, I told him what I knew I could, what had worked for me for so long. He would tell me, Scott, I'm telling you that I'm so confident that I'm doomed, that I'm just waiting out my days. And I would tell him, that's really not what the Bible says. There's no such thing, as I understood it, between being damned for all time and, and saved for all time. It doesn't work like that. We're each free moral agents making decisions in the moment. And if you want to choose differently, if you come to understand that God expects something different of you than what you've been doing, you get to do it right now. The past is the past. And again, Paul, that just resonated for him. But each time I went back, as the weeks and months went on, Paul seemed to respond less and less to that message. As much as I tried to reinforce that his fate had not been written for him, he constantly had objections, whether it be the voice that he heard, his own feeling of self-worth, and he started to pull back from our conversations to some extent. Simultaneously, my doubts were not going away. And I stopped using the literature that we would use. I started just relying, and even this rarely, on some of the Bible verses that were kind of existential and had given me pause for reflect over the years. But even that was tough. It, it was tough to hear my own words. Things were falling apart. One Saturday morning, I went to Paul's apartment in field service, and I saw his car parked in the parking lot. When I went in the hallway, I heard his TV playing in his apartment. I knocked on his door and pulled an answer. I knocked again, and I could hear him moving around inside, but he didn't want to answer the door. So I went back the next Saturday morning, and the same thing happened. The Saturday after that, I decided to give it one more try. So I went and met with the group that was going to be going out in field service before I went to go visit Paul. And when I walked into the building, a good friend of mine came up and she seemed really concerned. And she leaned in and whispered to me and said, there's a message for you on the machine that I think you should hear. So I went into the back room and hit play. The answering machine started to play Paul's voice. And he said, this message is for Scott. This is Paul. Scott, everything you've been telling me over almost the past year, the entire message that you've been sharing with me has left me more fucked up than I have ever been. I feel so turned around and confused. I, I don't know which way is up. I feel despondent. I can only assume that that was your intention. And so congratulations, but please never, never stop here again. And I remember as that message played out, feeling like my feet were just anchored in concrete. I was leaning forward towards the machine, and it just felt like I could lean forward and touch my nose to the ground without falling over. And I remember thinking, he's mentally ill. This isn't about what I was telling him. This is not about me. I hadn't caused him any harm. And then I wished that I could be so sure. And that was the last time that I ever heard from Paul. That was the last time I ever went to anybody else's door. And it was the last time that I ever felt like I had any kind of responsibility to a God that I couldn't understand.
This is Risk. That was Scott Whitney that we just heard. And this is Mike Doty that you're hearing behind me now. One last story on this best of Risk number six. This is one I told at the New York Podfest from a couple months back. And as you'll hear, this one has a little bit of, well, significance in the history of this show. Speaking of which, you might not be aware that almost half of Risk's episodes are no longer available on the free iTunes feed, but lots and lots of them are available in the albums section of iTunes for 99 cents apiece or at risk-show.com slash shop. So look up the classics from our early years because lots of great stories from back then. So without further ado, here is the last of our stories on this episode. We call this one Barefoot in the Park. I'm going to try something I've never tried before. You see, because when you do this storytelling stuff all the time, you kind of come up with like a greatest hits, like 12 stories or whatever that you pull out whenever when you're going to other towns. There's a story I told in the second week of Risk in 2009 that became kind of, you know, a little bit of a classic. I'm going to retell it tonight, but at the end, there will be a confession. Another detail will emerge that will shed new light on this tale. So let's see how this goes. A lot of people don't believe it, but I kind of knew I was gay from like day one. A lot of people think, you know, kids don't know that stuff, but seriously, like, ooh, I think the first conscious thought I remember having was I was, you know, about three and a half or four years old. I was looking at the shag carpet in the dining room and just thinking to myself, wow, I really like boys' butts. (laughs) And every other thought I've had since that afternoon has been pretty much that same one. But the thing of it is, is that Cincinnati is a town that hates sex. It's very, very afraid of sex. So in Cincinnati, it's not like homosexuality doesn't exist. It's like sexuality doesn't exist. So by the time I was 18 and ready to leave Ohio and come to NYU, I was so excited and very horny. I got to NYU my first week, and already I was thinking, when am I going to have my first hookup, my first gay experience? But the thing of it is, I really hadn't done any research on this city of New York. I didn't know anything about the geography or the history or anything. So I didn't know where gay men congregated. So one day I'm in the first week of school, just standing around the hallways of the musical theater department. (laughs) And I hear two guys talking, and they're saying, oh, you know what? You know where a lot of really good-looking gay guys get together? Up on West 82nd Street, there's a bar where all the guys from Columbia go, and they're all really preppy and all that kind of thing. 
And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, I've got to learn where this bar is. So I start writing stuff down. And this shows you what a great detective I was at the age of 18. I'm right in the middle of Greenwich Village. And I'm <laughs> tracking rumors that gay men congregate 82 blocks north. <laughs> But they said the place is called The Works, and there's no sign out front that says what it is, but there is a sign out front that shows plumbing, so you'll know that's where you're there. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is so great. I went to a little shop and I got an individual packet of lube. <laughs> Because I thought, this is it. This is the night. I'm going to pull out my little pack when the time comes. <laughs> and I took the train up there, and I found the place. I found the plumbing and all that stuff. And I walk in, and the guy says, oh, if you pay $5, we'll put this little thing on your wrist, and you can drink all the Paps Blue Ribbon you want all night long. I was like, oh, my God, this was a great decision. <laughs> I go on in, and it's just like the guys said. It was... So many cute guys. And here's the thing. I was your typical gay kid who kind of grew up terrified of competition, right? I didn't like sports. I didn't even like Monopoly. I didn't even like the game after which this show is kind of named. <sighs> so all of a sudden, I noticed there's all this competition happening around me. Men who are competing for other men. All the cruising, it made me so nervous. So I just kind of backed into a corner and started drinking PBR after PBR after PBR. And I kept saying to myself, oh, just, just stand up and Say hello to that one, Kevin. I didn't, didn't find it in myself to do it, and I'd say, that one, get up and say hello. I couldn't do it. Finally, at one point, I was like, I'm going to get up, I'm going to say hello, whoever crosses in front of my path. And I got up, and suddenly, all that PPR hit me. This tidal wave of nausea hit me, and I was like, I'm not saying hello to anyone. I've got to get out of here. So all of a sudden, I'm like a, a bear on a unicycle, <laughs> trying to make my way out of this place. And when I finally make it to the door, I break through into the fresh air. And I thought, oh, okay, all right, Kevin. That was sad. <laughs> That was your first attempt to hook up, but you've got, you're only 18, you've got so many years ahead of you, it's your first time, just forget about it, cut your losses and go home. So I start to walk around, looking for the subway again, and I figure, well, wait a minute, why don't I just sober up a little bit and get some fresh air and see where I am? And I'm walking down the block, and I notice there's this big, weird, black void across the street. I'm used to seeing building, 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 but across the street, there's just this darkness. I thought, oh my God, this must be that place they call Central Park. <laughs> and haven't I heard rumors that men congregate at Central Park at night to have anonymous sexual encounters? Well, I'm here to tell you, they do. <laughs> But that is at a part of the park called the Ramble, and I was nowhere near there. Nevertheless, I thought to myself, you know what? Any man who's walking in that park at three o'clock in the morning 
is probably either on his way to the forest sex party <laughs> or coming back from it. So why don't I just look for that guy? So off I went into the dark, into the woods. Now, I have to have a little caveat at this part of the story because when I tell it to gay friends and straight friends, people react differently. My gay friends, they're all used to this kind of story because they have friends who have had tons of anonymous sexual encounters in weird places in public. And they're used to this story being of the comedy genre. <laughs> My straight friends only know this kind of story from the news, and those stories always end with chloroform and a chainsaw. So at this point, I usually feel people thinking, oh my God, don't tell us you were murdered. I wasn't, but it was almost as bad. About 60 seconds in, I was like, oh my God, I'm already lost. I already don't know how to get out of this park. And you know what? I don't want to get even more lost. And you know, if my theory is correct that any man walking at 3 o'clock in the morning in this park is either going to the four sex party or coming back from one, why don't I just wait for that man and that man alone and we can have our own little party together? I don't need to get to the big party. I only need one guy. So why don't I just park myself in the bushes <laughs> and wait for him? And then I figured when I saw him coming, I'd just shimmy the leaves of the bushes. <laughs> and surely he would then see me and think, oh, what? It's another man in the park. Time to whip our dicks out. <laughs> so that's what I did. I parked myself in the bushes ready to shimmy. And sure enough, after about 10 minutes, a guy, I see this male figure coming down the walkway in the fog. And I look closer and I'm like, oh my gosh, he looks like he's wearing really nice clothes, like maybe Brooks Brothers suit and a really nice briefcase. It's an odd way to dress for the forest sex party. Looks like he might just be coming home from work. But I was like, oh, he might be the only guy I see. I better jostle these leaves. <laughs> so I jostle the leaves, and he stops, takes a good look, and he clearly thought, what the fuck is this bozo doing in the bushes? And hightailed it out of the park. Now I thought, all right, Kevin, before was sad. This is pathetic. You're waiting for just anybody in the bushes? Listen, call it a night. Just give up. You've got to get a better game plan together. So I was like, all right, all right, I'll go back to the subway. But you know what? Before I do that, maybe I'll just take a little bit of a rest. Maybe I'll take, you know, the weight off my feet for a minute. So I just laid down for a second in the bushes. <laughs> And about an hour and a half later, I came to again, and I was like, where the, oh, 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 yes, I'm, I'm in Central Park. Uh, I started to stand up, and I noticed that it was kind of wet and cold under my feet, and then I looked down, and I noticed someone had stolen my sneakers. Someone had taken my sneakers right off my feet. I don't even know how they found me in the bushes in the first place. 
But they had and they had absconded with them. I always like this part of the story because I get to say absconded. <laughs> so now I'm thinking, you know what, Kevin? Before was sad and then there was pathetic. This is fiasco, you know what I mean? Fiasco is when like the bad things that happen no longer have anything to do with cause and effect, you know? This is just like apocalypse now of hooking up, basically. So I'm like, get out of here, get home. So I get out of the park finally in my sopping wet socks and I do find the subway and they had tokens back then. So I was like, oh my God, I've got to get my token. And the train was whirling into the station at that point. And I thought, oh my gosh, the train at like 4.30 in the morning, they only come like every hour, so I better get this one. I can't miss it. So I put my thing, my token in there, and I run up to it, and it's whooshing and whooshing and whooshing by me and slowing down. And I start to feel that wave of nausea again. And the train slows entirely, and I kind of lean against the door, and it goes, bang, bang. <laughs> And it opens up, and I explode with vomit into the train. <laughs> now, there's about six people on this train. And they're all looking at me like, what the fuck? Who vomits into the train? Who runs up, waits for it to stop, waits for bang, bang, and then lets her rip. But I was like, oh my God, no, I have no time to be self-conscious here. I better just jump on or I'll miss this train. So I jump on momentarily forgetting that my feet are wet and only in socks. And I go, swoop, and then bam, down in my own mess. And now the six people on the train are at the other end of the car. And I thought, well, that has got to be the cherry on top. And all I could think to do was wave at them like, hello and good night. Now here is the confession. That is the story that I've been telling all these years. That's the story that I told on the second night of Risk ever. But even though we call it true tales boldly told, there is a bold lie right in the middle of that story. Because the truth is, I blew that business, man. <laughs> did not walk up, look at me scurrying in the leaves there and think, oh my gosh, I've got to get out of here. I had a theory and everyone here thought it was crazy. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if a man comes through here, he's either on his way to a party or back from one, surely he's going to think, let's whip our dicks out. Well, I only did one piece of research and got one piece of evidence, but the hypothesis proved true. <laughs> He saw me wiggling in the bushes and he stopped and he was like, what the hell? And then he just kind of like stood around for a while and got closer and closer to me until we were close enough to be making eye contact. And then he kind of like indicated toward his crotch and I kind of nodded and kind of started to unzip and I kind of got on my knees 
And we had a grand old time. <laughs> and then, of course, I took my nap and got my shoes stolen. <sighs> but the thing of it was, in those first days of risk, I wasn't sure if the audience could handle it. I was still feeling it was too risky myself. But you know, we're in our fifth year now, and by this time, a lot of you have probably heard the episode, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. So by this point in the series, I've been tied up and peed on and screwed by a woman with a strap on. I figure everyone's ready for the truth about what happened in Central Park that night. That is all for this episode, folks. This has been the Best of Risk, number six. And this is Jules Larson and A.G. behind me now. Well, don't forget, we have a lot of live shows coming up on June 19th. We are at Nerd Melt in Los Angeles with Cameron Esposito on the 26th of June. We are in New York City it's our usual show at the People's Improv Theater on the 4th of July. We are in London, England at the Hackney Picture House. And then on the 22nd of July, we're in Chicago, Illinois. So London and Chicago, come on out and see us in July. Don't forget to spread the word about the Risk Podcast, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison, and you can find out all you want to know about the podcast at risk-show.com. There's our shop there. There's our submissions page. There's the tables of contents for all the episodes. And there's our other website, thestorystudio.org, where you can find all of the information about how to take storytelling training, whether for your personal purposes or for your business, at thestorystudio.org. Remember, Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, and just like all of the podcasts, on that wonderful network, we are listener-supported. We very much rely on the financial help of the people who love our show. So go to MaximumFun.org donate and become a member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. 
folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's okay. Just break my heart open. Do it while we're young. Young. This worry is a wasteland. So sick of making sense. Let's do it while we're young. Young. Worry is a wasteland. And I don't want to waste this. Worry is a wasteland. And I don't want to waste this. Worry is a wasteland. And I don't want to waste this. I'm <laughs> <laughs>